What's good, everyone? Coach Damien here, The Shift Method. Hope y'all are having a great day. I got podcast episode number 30 for all of you, talking with, sadly, a former coworker, but still someone who I get to see semi-regularly, which is really awesome. And another cool dude who is in the field of exercise science research in the FAU side of things. So another cool person to talk to on all things exercise physiology along the side of the hypertrophy and strength side. And that is Seth Henson. Seth, you mind introducing yourself to the people for me? What's up, guys? My name is Seth Henson. I am a graduate assistant and teaching assistant as well at FAU. Um, and I do research in the muscle physiology lab. Um, and also do like some online coaching and personal training as well on the side. Yes, sir. And so Seth and I met, we met when he was kind of torturing me in their, their exercise training <laughs> protocols uh, for some research, but it was, it was good fun. And I'm like, this dude has, has a great personality, man. I need him to hopefully come work with me over in the personal training side. And although it was short, it was a great time having you at the rec center, man, because that was a lot of fun. No, no, that was, I actually had a really good time. Um, working at the rec center was fun as one of my, one of the few personal training experiences that I actually really enjoyed with like the client and then also having the boss, boss relationship was really good. I guess also because you were in the research before and we had, we had talked before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed it. And it's, it was good to have you in the research studies. Well, I'm actually glad you came out because we really needed you out there. <laughs> that was dope. That was a cool protocol. And I know we had Zach and Josh on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And so Seth is working in that lab so you can talk about some cool research things, which is going to be kind of the meat of the podcast. But as always with fitness professionals, I like to find out, you know, I know a little bit about Seth and who he is and what he does, but we're going to do a deep dive on kind of his background. So you know, let the people know, man, like, how did you get involved in like fitness in general? Like, what is like your origin story? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think we'll have to rewind back to eighth grade, probably. So I'm going to guess I was, I think it was 14 years old. I may have been 13. So I was homeschooled and I had to go to public school to play football. And I was absolutely terrified of being, because at the time I was actually, I was, um, by definition, obese, because I was over 30 BMI at the age of like 14 or something like that. Uh, so I had like body weight or body image issues and was going to school. Like that was a really big deal for me. So I was like, man, I feel like I might be too fat to go to school. And that was, that was, that really shaped what started off as like an unhealthy relationship with fitness into a healthy relationship with fitness. So like it may have started out bad. I, I started out like severe calorie restriction actually. And then I would complete exercise. I would exercise every single day. And I think I lost 50 pounds in the span of maybe it was three months. Holy crap. <laughs> it was, 50 pounds. It was, it was crazy. I, I'm, I'm thinking I may be, I may be exaggerating a little bit, but I'm fairly certain that by the time I was in ninth grade, I was 210 pounds and I was 160 pounds when I went in ninth grade. And it was end of my eighth grade year going into my ninth grade year. Wow. Yeah. So I, I like, Jeez. I, I thought, and I thought I, was, I looked great. I was like, man, I look absolutely <laughs> incredible right now. And, um, I remember my mom talking to me and she was, she looked at me and she said, you look like, um, Captain America before he got into the chamber. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> thanks Bob. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, Oh man, that's, oh. that's really rough. So that, that kind of made me get to the point where I was like, maybe I should switch gears and start lifting weights as opposed to like, because I was doing, have you ever heard of P90X? Of course. Okay. I was doing P90X like religiously for like an hour every day. I think that's how long the workouts were. And I would do them, I think it might've been six days a week. And at that point, after my mom said that, I was like, all right, I got to start lifting weights. I have to start doing something with resistance training. And thankfully I moved into playing football and we had a strength conditioning coach who knew what was kind of going on and he programmed for us. And then I think I gained weight. I was like 180 pounds my sophomore going into junior year. So I gained like 20 to 30 pounds after nice. lifting weight. And that's when I, that's when I started thinking like, maybe this is something that I would really enjoy doing. Like I went from obese to almost underweight um, and then back into like a more healthy body range. And then I started putting on muscle and really enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it more than I enjoyed playing football. So, wow. 
I, I thought it was great. And I was thinking about career paths and I looked into a school and they had an exercise science program. I was like, I would love to go to school for exercise science. Um, Cause this is a thing I really like. It's been a big part of my life and where I've got to now. And then I went to Anderson university in South Carolina um, and got my bachelor's there in uh, exercise science, which was under kinesiology. And I got to intern with the strength conditioning coaches there. Nice. Which was really cool. Um, cause I was either going to go for a personal trainer route or strength conditioning. So I interned with a personal trainer for about a year and I interned with strength conditioning for about six months. And then after the, both of those, I decided I wanted to go on and get my master's, which led me to be at FAU actually. And that's where we're doing research at now. Um, but yeah, I've, I've worked with private, um, strength conditioning. I've also worked with collegiate strength conditioning. I've been personal training for about four years now. Um, so I've, I've worked in like various places in the fitness industry and I'm, I'm more than likely will stay in the fitness industry for the rest of my life just because I, I do enjoy it a lot. Yes, sir. Uh, first off, what I wouldn't pay to see young Seth doing a P90X video, bro. That's just, <laughs> that sounds like gold right there, man. That is, that's an amazing sight. <laughs> I was working hard, man. I was working hard. They, I, I don't remember what kind of dumbbells we had. I think it might've been 10 pounds, but <laughs> I was throwing the 10 pound dumbbells around, dude. Yes, sir. And you said you did the strength and conditioning in undergrad. Was that like a general strength and conditioning internship where you kind of got your hands in like all the sports or a good number of them? Or was it like football oriented? Like, what'd you do? So we were a D2 school. So sports Sports wasn't a as big as it would be at a D1 school, obviously, because at D1 schools, you'll typically have collegiate strength and conditioning coaches for each specific team um, because athletics make so much money. Of course. Um, so the big school around where we were from was Clemson University, and they won the national championship. So each one of the strength and conditioning coaches actually have a different team they're assigned to, whereas at Anderson University, we had two strength and conditioning coaches assigned to every single team. Wow. Um, so they were they actually worked – I was talking to them about their work week and they worked about 80 to 90 hours a week. Jeez, dude. Yeah, They were. So you probably got a lot of hands-on experience. They probably. They were great. So I would do it in between classes and I would work as a personal trainer in the evening. So I would go intern at the, um, at the strength and conditioning facility and we would work with volleyball athletes, baseball athletes, golf athletes, tennis athletes, and got to work a little bit with track and field and a little bit with soccer athletes. Gotcha. So they would do this all day. So when, by the time I would be leaving to go to class, they'll be starting the next group of people and they would come in throughout the entire day. Gotcha. It was, they were, they were troopers to say the least, but they were, they were really good training conditioning coaches. I enjoyed working with them a lot. Oh yeah. You have to get so creative. Like I did a strength conditioning internship at a private uh, facility for like my, it used to be at FAU for undergrad, you had to do an internship. I think it was 400 hours for to graduate as like your last thing. Mm-hmm. And at this private place they had, they were contracted with Lynn university down the streets. So they did a lot of their teams, but also just like private groups of, you know, football players ready for the combine and basketball and baseball players. But yeah, I actually liked that you got to work with all different athletes because you got to see number one, there's a lot of relationships with sports. So, you know, everyone hinges, everyone squats, everyone push and presses, but then like having that diverse skill set of like, Oh, I'm working on speed mechanics with these, you know, NFL combine guys that are ready for their 40. And then an hour later, I'm working on, you know, swimming mechanics and like, you know, a back day for like the Lynn swim team. Like that was so cool and fun to me. And then men's basketball is coming in in the afternoon. Like that was so fun. Yeah, man, I, I did enjoy getting to see all the different teams come in because they would, the way they would program, it was very interesting to see them insert agility um plyometrics um and then like sports specific skills Mm -hmm. into their strength training so it was it was interesting to see because they would have different emphasis on for specific athletes like for their basketball athletes they would have like one or two specific like strength moves that would work on throughout the week and then after that they would do almost all agility and plyometrics and they may have some accessory work that they would throw in there yeah Um, but we would the majority of the volume they perform was actually agility and plyometrics because they want their vertical to be as good as possible. They want to make sure they're not getting injured and they want to be able to react to things on court. Right. Yeah. Um, but then you would have people come in like the baseball team and they would have multiple strength. Um, and then they would do a lot of rotational work. So most of their stuff actually ended up being strength training and then they would work on like linear speed. So yep. they, 
was to see the contrast between sports was was actually really cool. Um, and I, I did think I do think it offered me a lot on both sides. It would I think if you were to work with a district one, like if you were just work with a football team and you would specialize in that, you will become an expert in that. Of course. hundred yeah. percent. Um, but it has offered me because I've also worked with young athletes at some different with during personal training, I've done sports conditioning, and I've been able to work with different athletes because of that. Because I have experience yeah. in all these different sports. That's like, dope, man. That's yeah. really cool. And you've also, you know, I call it a sport. You've gotten to also dabble in the sport of bodybuilding a little bit, right? Yeah, I I, I competed in bodybuilding my senior year of undergrad, right after I graduated. So it's been the summer after I graduated. Um, yeah, when I came to college, I started lifting and I got really into the bodybuilding mentality. And at one point I think I was eating my, my professor called it the protein diet, but I was eating about 350 grams of protein a day. <laughs> Holy crap. It was, it was probably the most miserable diet I've ever been. <laughs> um, but I, I felt like I was getting absolutely jacked and I did put on a decent bit of muscle. Um, it was probably just from training hard and being in a surplus consistent, mm-hmm. but man, I, I was, I would read like these bodybuilding forums and I would go and I would do, (laughs) I would do workouts. I would do like a thousand rep arm workout. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, bro. Today we're hitting uh, 20 sets of bicep curls. Then you have 15 sets of preacher curls. And then that was just the warm up. Now we start. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was, it was it was, it was obviously like a fun time for training because like, I, I think a lot of lifters do go through that phase where of course. they're just trying out a bunch of different stuff. Um, and you, and you have fun with it. There was a, there was, but unfortunately they got to the point where I was hitting plateaus because I was like doing novel exercises all of the time and I wasn't progressing any of the exercise. So I was like, why am I not making any progress anymore? What's going on? Um, and that's what actually led me to start looking into like evidence-based training. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it was, it was an interesting evolution in undergrad. It really was. Um, yeah. But so to follow up on that, again, the bodybuilding, I had always said from the beginning where I like had this bodybuilding mentality, I was like, I'm going to compete one day. I'm going to compete one day. Um, and then I started plateauing and then I like kind of fell back and I did not want to compete because I was like, I'll never be big enough to compete anymore. Um, and then I went on, uh, started getting into like the evidence-based community a little bit more and ran into some of the big guys who were big in the industry my nutrition professor was like, look into a little bit of this research. These guys do a lot of resistance training research, hypertrophy literature. I started looking into um, some of the stuff that like you use Stronger by Science. You've heard of Stronger by Science before? Of course. You Stronger by Science would put out. So I, I got into their stuff and I was like, man, so I actually, there's actually a way to systematize my training and make it better. Um, and so I started actually, I started making progress by implementing some of the training stuff that I looked at in the literature. And then I actually hit up Stronger by Science. I was like, could you guys coach me for bodybuilding? Yeah. No and way. I got, yeah. So I was, it was before the end of my senior year. And I was like, if I'm going to be serious about it, I should probably get a coach because I know nothing about bodybuilding really. I've just trained really hard and ate a lot of protein, um, <laughs> which is probably not sufficient to go into a bodybuilding meet. Right. Right. Um, and I went in. I uh, got the coach I was set up with was Aaron Thomas and he was, he was absolutely incredible. Um, he was, he was one of the guys who would keep it simple. He would like nothing needed to be overcomplicated. Um, all the training would be very similar. And I actually asked him when we first started, I was like, man, this, this training seems like a little easy and like yes. complicated. And he was like, he's like, trust the process. Like, but he said, trust the process. Yep. <laughs> um, and it, it, well, I worked with him for a, about an entire year and went on and I competed in a untested and a tested bodybuilding show, meaning they did drug testing for once. So it was like a natural bodybuilding show. And then I did went to one where they didn't do any drug testing, um, completely different, uh, different athletes, <laughs> sizes and shapes. Um, but man, I, I, as far as learning to stick with things and learn that sometimes training is hard, especially if you're in a deficit for a very oh, long time. Yeah. Um, it was one of those, it's one of those things where you will build mental toughness out of it. It's not, it's, it's sometimes you just have to check the boxes instead of like this. Oh, I feel great after this work. Oh, I feel great. It's like, no, nah, I'm going to go in and check the box today because this is what I need to do in order to reach my goal. Absolutely. Um, man. That was, that was a big, 
it, I think a big lesson I learned from doing bodybuilding, but man, it was, it was honestly great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Bodybuilding. I think I will compete again, probably not very soon because prepping is pretty tough, but yes, I, I do plan on competing maybe in the, over the next two years or something like that. That's cool, man. And that starts a fresh for me to hear on like the change of mentality side from like, you know, you getting a coach hiring him full time. You're like, this seems easy. I'm going to guess, but correct me if I'm wrong, was the reason it seemed easy was like you went from doing maybe eight to 12 exercises a session to like the exercises were less, the volume maybe started a little bit lower than you thought kind of thing. Yes, that's exactly right. Like basically what we know now after I've been through and trained some people is starting out on the lower end of things is probably a, a much better idea and then tracking progress. So you have much more diagnostic clarity of like how they're progressing on different exercises, yes. what their body composition looks like. Like there won't be like must and incredible muscle damage from doing thir- 13 sets of like novel exercises on like different. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was, it was eye opening for me, but I will say by, by the, after about four months the training was really, I didn't ask for him for anything else. I was like, man, I can barely make it through some of these workouts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he would, he would make it an other progression. He, he did do auto-regulated deep or I mean, um, proactive deloads, which was something that I've never done before. Um, and it actually worked out really well. Cause once I got to the point where I was performing a significant <clears throat> on a couple exercises i i would need deloads pretty much every month or so um because we would get i would be absolutely toast after training yeah that calorie deficit doesn't help either as you're you know in that prep phase getting ready for that show where you're just like your mental the mental fatigue the ability to perform and, and exert force is like drastically you know diminished so yeah i can imagine that's that's definitely a helpful strategy Oh yeah. It, it was, it was a big deal during in a surplus. It was, we were, we had a little more leniency with like maybe a little bit more volume and then adding in some more exercises. But yeah, during a deficit, I think during a deficit is the time where you have to let dial in everything that you have to. It's like even micronutrient intake has to be something that. Oh yeah. hundred percent. You're decreasing (laughs) your total calorie intake, decreasing foods that have micronutrients in them that you would aren't aware of. So you have to like, and I got to make sure I'm sometimes I just make sure I got to take this multivitamin because I know I'm not getting in enough of this, these vitamin B vitamins or these D vitamins. It was, it was very eye opening. honestly. Yeah. I've never spent that much time in a deficit before. And it was very eye opening. Yeah. And I, I can relate that on my own training. I'm not training for bodybuilding, but hypertrophy has been a big focus of mine for, for a couple of years, not trying to be a skinny lad anymore. And like the <laughs> biggest shift I've had from talking with, friends and colleagues in the field, um, hiring, uh, Austin Lee. I had him as a coach for a little bit. He's been on the podcast. He's really big in the hypertrophy field, um, and his coaching and just, you know, from self-experimenting from what I know, my current workouts, I train, you know, about four or five times a week. I do do a lot of conditioning, but I understand that I'm willing to take that sacrifice for that interference effect if it comes about. So I'm okay with that. Cause I like playing basketball and doing other things, but the biggest thing in my training is I make sure my sets are very difficult mm-hmm. and I make sure that I really only do about three to five exercises every single session. Um, and people are like three exercises, like, you know, I did a leg day the other day, I did pendulum squat, leg extension and bicep curl. Cause my big focus for this block is quads and arms still or biceps. Um, but it's going to go up to about six sets every exercise. Um, and I think if you interviewed 14 year old Damien, who was doing eight to 10 exercises each session, I think if I would find out that I was not taking each set relatively close to failure, then my proximity to failure is probably a lot different. And then I would just think, oh, I need to do a bunch of exercises. I need to hit a bunch of different angles. So I need to do eight to 10 exercises when in fact you can diversify in the week by doing different exercises and just get good quality sets that really fatigue the muscle. So yeah. And it's a lot easier to manage in my opinion. Like three exercising sounds a lot less daunting than eight to 10. Like, you know, like that's just thinking about that now, like eight to 10 exercises, like four to five sets. It sounds like a nightmare <laughs> today. Yeah. Like, yeah. 14 year old Damien or 14 year old Seth would have been like, there's no way you're working out hard enough if you're only doing no, three exercises. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think a lot of people 
after they do dial in their training and they realize what training close to failure or doing hard sets is, it, it kind of changes their perspective on, man, maybe I am doing enough training here. Like maybe six sets of this is plenty for me to grow or have a good hypertrophy stimulus. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting turn of events. Once you start dialing in the quality of your training, as opposed to the quantity of your training, it becomes, it, training becomes, like I said, it's easier to figure out why wow, I made a lot of progress on this. Yes. And I heard it from my Dr. Mike Israel the other day. I listened to a lot of his stuff and he had a really good point of like doing more than like, you know, just doing a bunch of exercise and thinking like you're just getting a much more volume that way. Think of the time it takes. Like, even if you know what weight to use on a machine, or like an exercise, like you got to go over to it. You might have to wait for it. You have to get set up. You might have to do like a quick warm set or two to get into the groove of it. And then you're ready to like do your working sets. If you do that eight to 10 times, like the amount of time spent just doing that is absurd. When you could pick like three or four good lifts, get into a good groove with it and just keep pounding the muscle. Like that to me makes a lot more sense just from a time standpoint too. That's actually a really good point. That's something I, I wouldn't have thought about previously because yeah, I mean, in general, you are going to go to do something. You're going to try it out, make sure all your setup is, even if it's a machine, you're going to make sure everything's dialed in. Right. Oh yeah. And then after that, like if you do another set, like, yeah, you're getting an extra five minutes on each exercise and that's an extra 50 minutes for your workout. If you're doing <laughs> what 10 exercises. Yeah, dude, exactly. So you're in the gym for an hour and a half, two hours, like at least, <laughs> Yeah. And if, if you're a busy person, like that's just not even feasible anymore. You know, no. I, I, my workouts go from 30 minutes to an hour and a half at like the end of the block is what I can do basketball, like an hour and a half, two hours, but I do it very late at night. Cause that's when I have the time to do it. So yeah, I can't be at the gym for three hours. How's your, how's your lifting going with playing basketball in the evenings? Like, has that interfered with any of your, you lift in the morning, right? I lift. It's, it's a hybrid. It's, it's okay, like so half and half. I'd say, yeah, the basketball, honestly, I think it's, it's just enough to keep me at like a base level conditioning nice. uh, for my hypertrophy work. So I don't get like super fatigued without interfering too much. I also started doing, so I do basketball twice a week. I'll start doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu twice a week as well. Oh, so, very nice. and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's like weird. Some days is like very technical, so it's not super exhausting. Um, and it's more so, I would say, like a cognitive task and a little bit of muscular endurance. But then there's some days where like you're just you're grinding, you're like doing max effort. And then it's like also cardiovascular at the same time. So I think it's not really too much interfering. It's more so just a different skill set. Um, so I think I'm pretty good in the cardio front, but I know I'm like probably teetering on that. I see. Yeah, I I uh, I ask because I've been training to compete in indoor rowing. And okay. Yeah, I've been doing I've been doing it similar to you. So I've been doing about three days a week. Um, and I, I, I try to space it out to where it's not affecting like most of my lower body sessions, because most of the mostly rowing does lead to like me fatiguing my quads or my back will be sore occasionally. But yeah, I, I haven't had really run into many problems at all. I, I've had maybe like a couple of days where I've come in from doing like a hard rowing session and, mm -hmm. and then been like, man, I, I feel pretty fatigued from this. For, and then this may affect my session, but I could count on my hand the number of times that has happened. And if I actually continued to progress in strength and I guess you could say hypertrophy from just like comparing visual, um, like photos and stuff like progress pictures, yeah, um, I'll doing both at the same time. And it's been, it's honestly been incredible. Yeah. I'd say like only playing twice a week, at least in my experience, I think personally, Yeah. Like I said in the beginning, maybe there's like a little bit of an effect and I'm willing to compromise. But honestly, now that I think about it, because basketball, it does obviously have an aerobic component if you're playing multiple games for an hour, like there's that. But it's more so I would call it like a power interval sport because there's a lot of jumping, cutting, change of direction, which, you know, is pretty good for the lower body for developing muscle mass. So maybe it all is balancing out in a sense where like I still get some development and, and work for my lower body, which is my goal. Um, but I also keep a nice aerobic base to where I can not get too fatigued and too out of shape. So I'm gonna keep doing it. They, they, they put out a meta-analysis recently on their current trainings and it's effects specifically on hypertrophy. Uh -huh. I'm blanking on the first author's name, but they, their recommendation with, from what the majority of literature shows is if you can space out, obviously if you can space out like 
your cardio sessions and like from a day-to-day basis, like you have one on the other day or you switch, like if you're doing upper body workouts, you can do lower body cardio or something like that. But they say, if you can space it out between six hours of a cardio session and your resistance training mm-hmm. session, I'll see any of like any significant effect for, um, hypertrophy, which is really interesting because in the past, like obviously the interference effect was a, a very big deal. And then now yeah. more recent literature is like the interference effect is likely not a big deal. It is, it does seem to be a pretty big deal for like power performance. So if you're an athlete, there probably is a little bit more things you be, could, should be concerned with, but yeah, for yeah. If, if you just structure your workouts well, or like, and you space out your cardio session or your aerobic training session from your resistance training, it doesn't seem to affect hypertrophy really at all. That makes sense. Or unless you're like trying to be an hypertrophy based client, but you're also like doing hyper endurance conditioning multiple days in the week, like you're training for a marathon and you're trying to be jacked. It's like, I don't know about that one. (laughs) In the studies that they discussed in the analysis, they were typically only doing like 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. Oh yeah. You're, you're fine. And like a hundred miles a week, I think um that's for sure they did they they made a note in it there was like intensity and duration does seem to matter for interference effect okay look at it's funny i just saw now that we're talking i just saw my feed today i think i like screenshot or saved it but i I don't know the author's name it was like comparing resistance training to plyometrics in hypertrophy have you seen or heard this uh i've seen stuff about resistance training and aerobic training specifically okay analysis on that i read like a couple slides or something like they were trying to see if like if doing plyometric training i don't remember what like the exact specifics are maybe i'll do a, a q a on this but they were talking about briefly how comparing groups of people who just do structure resistance training and then people who do like a structured plyometric program and if they would have similar outcomes of hypertrophy training so that sounds interesting mm-hmm. i have to i have to dive deeper into that the kind of the last thing, but before we go into your research is I want to hear like what your fitness philosophy it is. So I always ask this for people who are like in the coaching space to know like what their, what fitness or exercise science, whatever it is means to them. So if you had like a philosophy, like what would it be for you? Um, so the way I think about this is in rule, rule of twos. So for just like I guess for general population or people who are looking just to getting in training, I think a good idea is to train for what you enjoy. So like you're, you have a goal oriented training, but it's typically for whatever you're, you enjoy in life. So for some people that could be like um, playing pickleball on the weekend Mm -hmm. something like that. So they, like, if you, if you orient your training to some extent to facilitate them doing something they enjoy, like a hobby, it leads to them, staying in training for more like a longer time and so you have people even people who do like activities of daily living i've taught i've had a couple of clients who were older and they were just concerned with i need to be able to make it upstairs or yeah. i need to, be able to um if i fall down i need to be able to make sure i can get up and take care of myself yes. and if, if you train for that with that goal in mind and they see that progress like it keeps them in the gym for much longer and leads to better outcomes in the long run so that was, my, that's my first philosophy of training is just train for what you enjoy or like whatever your goal is, make it be something that you enjoy typically. Right. hundred um, percent. And then for, for athletes, um, whose training mentality is a little bit more and usually they like to overshoot a little bit on things. <laughs> that do. Um, my training philosophy is it's training, not performing. Um, if you are training, there's obviously times where you should push hard, mm-hmm. but you're not performing for your coach and you're not performing for anybody else. You're training, uh, I see. In a training session. I so see you. You want to do what obviously do what's prescribed, but there are times when you need to auto regulate and be like, this needs to be pulled back. So that should keep you from being like, maybe I should just do a max attempt on my squats today because you know, it's, if it might feel okay. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. It's never, it's never a good idea to, to think about, uh, it's, there are tough times when like you're going at, I say like a testing block for some of my athletes, mm-hmm. I want them to go. And that's when you would want your athletes to go out, but you periodize up to the point where in my testing block, I want to make sure that all these training variables optimize so you can perform well in the testing block. Yeah. If we're doing, if all our training blocks are just training for adaptations, then it, it needs to be looked at as it's training. You're training, really like you're training to perform later on. You're not training to perform at that time. 
Yes. I like that distinction because yeah, the, the training for the athlete is it can be somewhat monotonous. And of course, athletes are performers, like their their job is about sports performance, but the training allows them to perform in their sport. It's not that yeah. you need to perform every single day in the gym in that way. So I I really like I've never heard it explained that way before. That's really dope. And of course, like the activities of daily living, it's like habit change and and changing behavior is like the ultimate name of the game, right? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And that I usually, I usually say that for my athletes, a lot of like my general population clients, like I, I don't want to say like some of them usually have a little more gas in their tank. Um, but then you, there, you, you know, an athlete where you'll have somebody who sandbags it a little bit. And like, oh yeah. I don't know if I can, if I can do that. And you'll have athletes who are like, I can do anything. I can do anything. <laughs> you just throw that and we'll make it happen. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think that's a good way to rein both of them in and just be like, let's make sure we're training for what we actually want to do here. Maybe it's something we enjoy, or maybe it's we're training and not performing. No, that's dope though, man. I really appreciate those philosophies. And I, I think it's nice to distinguish because obviously as a strength coach, like you said, you know, athletes are on average, right? You get some, some general clients who also go, they go hard in the paint too, but you know, athletes have a, a little bit of a different mindset. So I like, I like that distinction a lot. That's kind of, Mind changes every now and again. And I do have, you know, multiple philosophies, but biggest thing I always tell people if I'd like put a philosophy is like, Hey, you know, you can be the best coach in the world. You could have all the research knowledge. You could have the alphabet and certifications and degrees behind your names. But if you can't influence behavior change, then you're not, not that you're not worth it as a coach, but like it doesn't make you a good coach just because you have all those things. You have to actively be able to help people find ways to change behavior because ultimately that's how you lead to progress. I could have the perfect specialized hypertrophy program written by the exercise science lab. But if my research subjects don't show up to actually do the lifts, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. I I completely agree with you, man. It's that's, that's something I struggle with while doing research is I, I look at these and I'm like, this is the optimal way to train. Right. Um, but what's always optimal is not a, may not be effective if, you know, have somebody complying to whatever you're giving them. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. It's trying like doing that in practice because there are things that my clients that I wouldn't program for hypertrophy that they just enjoy doing. And so in order to make them enjoy training, I'll, I'll program something that may not be that similar for hypertrophy, but that's something that just like, and I really love, I really love that exercise. I really was great. 100%. That's that art. Of, of program design, right? It's the, it's a blend of the science and the art, man. Like what is most, you know, practical, or excuse me, what is most scientific is not always most practical and conducive because we're not robots. We're not machines. You get some clients who will do whatever you say. And it's just like, sweet. I can make it as specific and scientific as possible. Other people, it's like, I don't like back squats. So it's like, well, okay, I guess I got to find ways to make you do your, your squat based pattern. That's productive for your goals. You know? No, I, I couldn't agree more, honestly. Yeah. And it is, it's a challenge to work with some people like that, but in the mm-hmm. end, it does make you a better coach. And then you realize like, there are some things that I enjoy doing. Like when I start, first started exercising, I mean, some of the stuff I didn't do was one of the very stimulant for hypertrophy, but it got me into training. And I exactly so like, if that's going to keep me training for the rest of my life, then I should probably, why not add that into my program at some point? Absolutely. Now you're doing research in the exercise science lab and you kind of, y'all kind of got a couple of different research projects going on right now. So just kind of talk about like some of the, some of the research y'all are doing, like stuff that gets you excited and let's kind of, you know, talk about some of those different topics. I'm curious to hear it. Yeah, man. Um, So we have three projects going on in the muscle phys lab right now. Um, The first one we're working on is um, we're looking into predictors for individual responses to training volume in the lower body specifically. Um, this is this one is a very interesting study, and the study design is also very interesting. Um, so they've we've had a couple papers come out recently where they've used what's called a within participant design. Mm-hmm. So what you'll do as a researcher, you'll take um, let's just give someone a name like Sally, and we'll do a research protocol on one of her legs. And then we'll do a different research protocol on her other leg. Mm-hmm. She herself has become her own control. So like we can control for like the variance between responses for subjects because subjects 
do respond differently to training. Like as a coach, you obviously know that you could give yes. the same training protocol and they will all respond differently to that training protocol. Um, so what we're doing with this is we're looking at individual responses to training volume between two legs. Mm-hmm. And so some people respond better to training volume and some people respond better to lower training volumes. I see. Yeah. So there was, a, I think there was a study by his name is, I may be mispronouncing this. His name is Hubal. Um, and he did it in 2005 and they had like, they had a range of um, responses to like elbow flexors. So just doing like bicep curls, basically. They looked at the biceps and there was a range of responses in their sample size. And sample size was 585 untrained subjects. So very big sample size, which is mm-hmm. good for exercise science because in exercise science, you usually have these small sample sizes. You're looking at very small effects. And this one, he had 585 subjects and the range of response was negative 2.3% growth. So they lost muscle. And then he had people increase muscle growth by 59.3%. Holy crap. So they all did the same protocol, but they all had responses on that range. Um, and they wanted to look at, they're like, all right, so individual response to training is incredibly different, right? Yes. But they wanted to look at, all right, what, how do we isolate what variables causes this, right? So we know that training volume itself um, seems to have like a dose response for hypertrophy, right? So mm-hmm. if you perform more training volume, you likely will have more hypertrophy. Um, but there was a study, I think it was by DeMoss and maybe it was, it was recent. So it was like maybe 2020, maybe it might've it might been a little bit earlier than that, but they looked at individual responses to training volume specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they grouped participants in either a non-responder, moderate responder, or high responder group. And okay. they people perform different volumes and people actually would respond bad to low volume and respond well to high volume and then vice versa. So people will respond well to low volume training and respond pro- poorly to high volume training. Mm. So you had non-responders in the high volume training group being moderate responders or high responders in the low volume training group. So maybe the concept of obviously there's still, and of course this could change over time, but like for let's talk, I guess, hypertrophy in this context, there are some key factors, right? Like you said, volume is kind of that, that multiplier of the response, that dose related response and intensity is also an important component as well to make sure that the muscle is being stimulated enough. Right. And then on average, we can say for right now, maybe at least that with those two things being applied, if you gradually progress intensity and volume over time, you should see some positive response for most people. Yes. And of course, they will have like probably some kind of bell curve thing where like most people get some benefit. You get the genetic freaks on one side who just like balloon up and then you get like, unfortunately, the poor performers on the end who either have no response or a a negative response possibly. But maybe if given a different protocol, that bell curve would change to different people yes. where you could be a high responder in one scenario but a low responder in another scenario, given the protocol. And it just, it might depend. I don't know if it's, if it's evolutionary, if it's like genetic or what it is, but maybe some of those people aren't necessarily low responders, period. They might just be low responders for the protocol itself. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think that's what they hypothesize is like, there are, there are different protocols that some people will likely will be more optimal for some people for hypertrophy. They didn't, they couldn't determine like, what genetically causes this to happen, right? They did say, I think there was a paper by Hammerstrom and it was in 2019. And they said that the individual changes in response to um, training was related to ribosomal biogenesis. So basically the muscle building or the protein building factories um, were more active in different protocols. So Mm. um, somehow that you respond better to a different protocol via that. They don't know, they don't know exactly how to find that yet. Right. So we don't know what, how do we know what athletes can respond to this low volume or this one's going to respond better to a high volume training. Right. The study that we're performing now is actually looking to find, are there predictors of individuals responses to training volume and can we find them? So we know like this person, after we do these predictors or like these tests will actually respond better to high training volume. So I'm going to, try to get them up to high training volume as soon as possible, or do they respond better to low volume training? And I should start them off with lower volumes. 
So you're doing a bunch of tests to look for precursors that is going to give you maybe some, I don't know if it would be more so, I guess you call it more of a, a correlation that might give you an inkling to the way they would respond in a sense. Yeah. So we're doing, we're using, we call it like practical predictors. Okay. Uh, we're basically going to run tests and this is an exploratory analysis. So if you're doing, looking for like causational research, they can, they would not do this because the error rate is very high for when you're doing running multiple correlations per se on a bunch of variables for one variable that you're of course. So we're doing an exploratory analysis. We're looking to find, is there a variable that seems to predict better changes, like either changes in better response in changes in volume. So either high volume or low volume. So what, what one of these practical predictors is going to lead to us knowing our athlete will likely respond better to low volume, high volume training. I see. Um, so that's what we're working on right now. It's, it's a really interesting study we're doing. We're also doing a within subject design. So we have one of the subject's legs doing a high volume program, one subject's legs doing a low volume program, and they perform the test at the beginning and at the end. Okay. And it will, it's, it's a very interesting study. So we'll be able to look at which leg responded better because one has done high volume, one's done low volume. Uh -huh. What, how do they perform on these like practical predictors beforehand? And now, I'm sorry, but I mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, now, if I remember correctly from taking the CSCS, from an athletic context, there's, I think, is it the transference effect? Or there's some term where you can train a single limb and it can have transfer to the other limb. Yes. But I think that's in the concept, context of power and maybe strength. But I'm guessing it's not a hypertrophy thing because that's more architectural. Yeah, so... It's called the cross education effect, and it is a neurological adaptation. Okay. Yeah. So they, they'll see where the people who have actually injured limbs, like an opposite limb, they'll train the contralateral limb. So let's say you injured your right shoulder and you do bicep curls on your left arm, your right arm will still maintain strength. Gotcha. Curls. Um, and so that is a confounder with like the, these within subject of designs. But if you're, main outcome you're interested in is hypertrophy it's not as big of a deal i see if you if you are looking specifically at strength that is something that you have to worry about gotcha okay um, cool so you have the two limbs and then because it's hypertrophy protocol you may see different response within the individual and can then make a judgment saying hey this protocol might be better for you because you had a better benefit and then you're looking at these predictable precursors that maybe can give you an inkling to for future subjects or future training, if we see these things, we can maybe lead and say, this is where you should start for your training. Right. Right. And yeah, it, it'll be, it'll be a really interesting study to, to complete once, like I said, but previously it is an exploratory study. So it's not something you can draw a causate. We can't like take the study and be like, all right, this is exactly what the of case course. Is. Like it's, it, you, we can take it and be like, this is where more research probably needs to be done. Yeah. But nonetheless, also a very interesting study. It's, it sounds dope. Because I was talking with Sean about it. This, this to me would be the, the, the future of maybe not just research, but also the future of program design of the purest way to individualize a training program. Because right now it's, you know, it's very, coaches kind of do it. It's exploratory where I take the research that I know, I apply it to my client. If it works, I stick. If not, I kind of have to do like this shotgun effect of like, okay, well, I guess if you're a hypertrophy client and standard, you know, volume and intensity doesn't work for you. Maybe I have to try it more so a strength protocol and see if that works for you or a more endurance-based protocol until something sticks. But if I can maybe have some predictors in advance and then I could apply that to my client and just kind of get rid of all that extra legwork, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's that's where the good part of individual response or looking at individual response in any kind of research is a big win um, because most research is done on a large group or in exercise science, they're not very large groups. But we do research in order to find like what may be best for this large group of people on average. Yes. Because right? we've, like I just said on here, the range of responses is going to be different no matter what we're looking. Of course. Looking at like hopefully this represents our group of twenty people that we have in exercise science literature, um, which is obviously a problem. Like you'd want larger sample sizes to be more representative of these populations we're generalizing things. Yeah. To. That's where meta analyses come in. Super cool. Um, but it's. It's really, it is really interesting to actually try to find out like, all right, this will be an, a good way for me to individualize my programming for each and every one of my clients. So I think it will be impactful in, in some aspect, right? Yes.
what are what are some of those predictors that you're hoping to draw correlations from? What are some of those things that y'all are measuring? Um, so that that I don't know if we're allowed to share. Ah, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Published. Um, I I would I would I mean we have we have some pretty interesting ones, but yeah, I I think probably wait until the paper's published before we like really discuss like the no worries the paper. Um, but yeah, that. You'll, you'll, you'll read it when it comes out though. It might be, it might be a little bit longer from now, but we'll, we'll share some results with you for sure, man. Don't worry. Very cool. Very cool. And okay. So that's kind of cool. The, the, in, it's called inter individual. And in- so yeah, it'll be just, yeah. You could say inter individual because it will be with a within subject design, but yeah. Inter individual responses to training volume. Inter individual response to training volume. That's very cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to read that. And should be. Yes, sir. And then, okay, so that's one thing that's like kind of a big overarching project y'all are focusing on. Is there any other kind of research that's going on that y'all can talk about as well? Yes, we have two other projects going on right now. Um, And one of them is looking at training at long muscle lengths versus short muscle lengths, which is there's been a recent trend in exercise science where looking at long muscle length training in the literature, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. And then we have another study looking at proximity to failure and its effects on bench press strength. Um, and in our lab, like we, we typically look into proximity failure, what we have in these past couple of years a lot. And that's what our research has been based on. Um, so this study that we have now, we've, we've kind of found some of the limitations of the way proximity to failure literature has been done. So usually we have a chart and our RPE and we'll be like, We'll ask subjects here, what is your RPE? Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a problem with that can be is people can be inaccurate with their RPE scores or like how many reps they have left, right? Right. So um, Helen et al. actually published a paper recently talking about like some ways we could fix that. And they proposed using velocity and RIR RPE profiles. So what we do, what we've done for this study, we've actually taken that construct um, so what you would do is you would have subjects perform reps to failure, um, and then you would correlate their um, velocity of the whatever they're doing, especially for bench press. You'll look at the velocity of the barbell. You'll mm-hmm. look at how many reps they had it left at each point. So like if they were at failure, you would look at their failure velocity and then one rep in reserve before that, you would look at the velocity for that, and you would have basically a velocity profile for all their RIRs. I and see can objectively look at where they're training at at an RIR scale. I see. So for example, if I, you know, on a particular load, I was, you know, at a bar speed of X with three reps left in the tank, hopefully in my training program, if I told you I had three reps left in the tank, it should be somewhere near that. Yes. that Theoretically, that would be the case, right? So now we have two ways to um, assess where, how close you're training to failure, basically. Yes. And I, I guess, I guess that really wouldn't change much day to day, right? Because reps and reserve automatically is auto regulated day to day, but the velocity would probably be somewhat similar. So, I guess that, yeah, actually, no, that would make sense because I was trying to think like, well, would you need to check it every day? It's like, no, it's reps and reserve three could be a different weight on the bar every single day, so that that actually checks out. That's yeah, cool. That's very true. And people who are typically more trained can more accurately be like. That was three reps in reserve, and we'll, you can look at velocities typically, and that will reflect what they're doing. Yeah. People who are less trained, maybe, or like let's just say their perception of effort is higher, but they're still able to produce force. Um, like the force reduction is not impeded at all. Then they may call a lower RP or a higher RP, but their velocities may reflect a difference. So they could, may say, I had one rep left, but their velocity may reflect they had three reps left just because they're perceiving that there's a lot more effort being put out for this. Right. Um, and so we, we basically implemented this into our training program. And now we're going to look at does training at these on like, I guess you could say objective measures of proximity to failure in bench press. Does it lead to better strength gains to do that with a closer to failure or farther from failure? Um, I see. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And it's, it, deal, it actually helps and controls for a lot of the limitations that we've found in the literature that we've done over the past couple of years. Um, so I'm pretty pumped about that one. 
Strength is also a very interesting field. Strength and diversity both right now are such interesting fields of research, man. Because like things that I thought like a few years ago, even maybe a year or a few months ago are like kind of starting to crumble. Like on the strength side, you know, if you asked me a couple of years ago, it's like, nah, you got to do like, you know, six or eight sets and it's got to be like, you know, five reps, maybe a couple less. And it's got to be like near max effort every single lift. When it's like, you know, if you're, if your training is done properly, maybe you don't have to do as many sets. Maybe you don't have to be doing six, seven, eight sets for every single lift on your compound lifts. And maybe you can still get, you can still get good, good stimulus for building force production. Yeah. I mean, it's strength is strength is very interesting. And I think maybe a little bit more difficult to pin down in hypertrophy um, at this point. (laughs) Um, But yeah, man, I think, Proximity to failure likely does matter to some extent. Obviously, load on the bar matters a lot. That's where you're going to get most of your strength adaptations, producing maximal force against high loads. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 something. There's still areas that need to be checked out. Where like proximity to failure isn't solidified yet. Like that's why we're doing proximity to failure research on strength. Um, and they have velocity loss literature, and um, I think they're be, they're going to be coming out with a new meta analysis on. Um, different training velocity or velocity trainings. So basically like proximity to failure using velocity only um, and its effect on strength. And there's going to basically go through all the literature and give you the state of the literature again. I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I think relatively soon it'll be, it is going to be, it's going to be pretty interesting to see how maybe the paradigm shifts with some of the literature that's coming out. That's cool, man. Yeah. So with those two groups that you have, you said it was a high proximity to failure group, and a low proximity to failure group, right? Yes. With those two groups, is it you don't really have a rep range prescribed? It's just let's say I'm just making it up for group the the one group is you know reps in reserve of one to two, and the other group is reps in reserve of four to five. Is it we're not counting reps? You're just going until we see the velocity we want. Yes. So wow, that's sick. Not, not going to jump too far into the details of the study because I'm not sure if we're allowed to like give you all the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. But basically, you will perform reps until you hit a, a velocity stop, which would be like your objective RAR. Um, it's, it's, it's been, it's, it's an interesting study. That's all, that's all I'm going to say so far, but yeah, it's. But that's very individualistic because it's, it gets out of the paradigm of like, you are assigned a rep range. I don't want to say arbitrarily, but it's like, you know, for general research, for strength adaptations, you know, we're going to do this many reps at this intensity. It's like, no, when does intensity start becoming relevant to you that is when we're going to stop the set because i've seen you know i've I've read studies where like they do the proximity to failure thing where it's like people do a set of bench press you know at like whatever 70 percent of their one rep max whatever it is and they'll call like a rir of four or five and then they do like 15 more reps and it's like it's hard to judge like someone's intent and then like maybe they have more in the tank and maybe that causes a different adaptation who knows unless you apply it to the individual and see what happens. So that's really dope, man. Yeah, it's it's it'll be an interesting study to look at, and yeah, it hopefully it will it will help us give us or give us an idea of you know what is the individual or help control for some like the individual differences in training, right? Because yeah, can perform a lot of reps at a given load, and some people can't perform hardly any reps at a given load. Yeah, but yeah, it's it'll be it'll be interesting, nonetheless. Nonetheless, that is dope, man. Yeah. Do you have any aspirations of going for? phd i i i am planning on getting my phd um i'm actually planning on getting an international phd Um, oh wow works out with with the way i want to live my life for the next couple years uh but yeah man i i've I've more recently been interested in like regional hypertrophy and then maybe like it's how it could be predicted for like task specific force or um joint angle specific force for athletes specifically so <laughs> to make that like a lot more simple uh like let's just say like you train to grow a specific portion of your muscle will it predict like i can p- produce more force when i'm in like a position to sprint if i per- if i get more hypertrophy at the lower part of my quad or something along those lines um and they've had some they've had some really interesting papers come out recently. I think one of them, one of them's by 
I think his name Norkov, and it was in, in pub. Well, he pups in 2014, so it's been a while. Um, but they actually looked at quad growth and they regional hypertrophy quads, excuse me. And they looked at where they were growing in the quads. So if it was like distal, it would be closer to the knee. And then if it was proximal, it would be farther from the knee, right? Mm-hmm. They looked at it and they, were, they saw that growth in specific regions led to increases in strength at different ranges of motion. Huh. Um, and specifically isometric strength because okay. it's a little bit different from dynamic strength, right? But like with some of their, like when they were more distal, hypertrophy occurred, they saw that they actually produced more force at a longer muscle length. So they were producing force at a more flex position. So that if you think about like, if you're sprinting or you're accelerating, yes. if your knee's in that full, fully flex position and you're pressing through and you're able to produce more force at that point, you theoretically will be able to accelerate faster. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. But also it's, it's important to know that like that's isometric strength. So like, and may yes. not perfectly over to dynamic strength, which huh. is we need to know. That's very interesting. Yeah. And then they've done another regional hypertrophy study where they used regression modeling to find out, all right, so what part of the quad, if you grow it the most leads to like more torque production or more force production over the knee. Right. And they did one, and this is by, I think it's named Aranchuk and it was in 2021 and they ran the regression model. They actually found out that like when you have regional hypertrophy in the distal portion, it actually increases, it seemed to increase force production through all joint angles. Okay. So that was like the most beneficial one if you were to see, but I guess that's like, I guess like, I guess certain exercise selection, maybe you can focus on that, but can you isolate where you're getting hypertrophy in a particular part of the muscle. I mean, I know like if you get like really nitpicky, like a leg extension maybe is better for more proximal quad or excuse me, more distal quad development versus like a back squat where it's a little bit, maybe more spread. Um, maybe you can target the delts a little bit and like the anterior, the lateral, the posterior fibers differently, but can you really get that specific with, with how much you can target the muscle? So <clears throat> this is where some of the long muscle length research actually comes into play because when you train at longer muscle lengths, they will typically see greater hypertrophy overall mm-hmm. muscle, but they'll actually see distal hypertrophy is better when you train at longer muscle lengths. So that would be like performing a full range of motion squat. You actually would see more hypertrophy in the distal portion of your quad, which may lead to more force production throughout all joint angles. Is that because, is like the theory behind that because the joint that is producing the force itself is at its most stretched position? So, yeah, so the, there's a couple of theories on why training at long muscle lengths actually leads to like better hypertrophy adaptations and specifically in distal portions. Um, one of them is just like you and the length tension relationship of the muscle. Since muscle is elastic, the longer mm. you stretch it, the more tension is on the muscle, right? Of course. So it may lead to a better hypertrophy stimulus. Right. And then how, yeah. So then, like, let's imagine like um, an, an easy muscle to imagine. Usually it's just like your quad. So when you perform uh, an action, if you're, if your muscle is completely stretched and taut, there, there would be more tension at the bottom of a squat. If you're a full depth, as opposed to parallel squat, even though there may be more um, like cross bridges attached at the parallel portion of the squat, you will have more passive tension because you're actually pulling the muscle I see. Apart. Um, it's, it's pretty, the, the research in that area is really interesting. Um, but it, it theoretically is possible to le- get more hypertrophy in specific portions of the muscle by maybe manipulating muscle lengths. Um, and if exercises are multi-joint or single joint, um, and then most of the time it's changing the muscle length is what the literature is showing. And that's what, that's why the long muscle length literature is really interesting. On the long muscle length side, not to throw a can of worms into this. It's another research paper that I came across that I still have to read. There was this one on uh, static stretching of the calf mm-hmm. and it was, they used a special orthotic device to stretch the calf. I believe it was for an hour a day, a couple of days during the week. I don't remember if people were trained or not, but, these people were, were put in this device. It's, it made them stretch and it was a pretty intense stretch and they had to hold it in the device for an hour. 
and they had pretty significant calf hypertrophy as a result. And so immediately I went to like, Hey, if they're, I don't remember if they are, but if they're undrained, I'm guessing it's just the, the force and the tension on the muscle. Cause an hour long stretch is insane. And if it's a hard, if it's a difficult enough strain, maybe it's just a stimulus for the muscle that caused it to growth to grow, excuse me. So that, that would make sense in, in terms of the long muscle length to, to really drive hypertrophy response. Yeah, man. It's, I also <laughs> looked through that study. It's, it's really interesting. And I think they've done some, I can't, don't quote me on this because I, I'm not sure, but I think they've also done some other stretching studies where they have seen hypertrophy in untrained individuals. Um, that, that I could, that I could see if it's like an hour long and it's really forced and they're untrained, it's, it's a stimulus to the muscle. I kind of like imagine like if you're sitting in a bodyweight squat for an hour every day, I would imagine your quads would have some kind of development like that, that I can see. But if it was like trained individuals, an hour is still pretty long, but I, I would be like, hmm. I think interesting. There, okay. So there is also some research looking at like resistance curves and training um, through like long muscle lengths per se. Um, and it does, I would say like there's the two studies that I've looked at would suggest and one of them was by Nunez. And so they, they basically did a preacher curl and then they did a, um, a cable preacher curl. So when you're doing a cable preacher curl, it's actually harder at the top because the, the moment arm is longer at the top of the muscle at the range of motion. Right. Yes. But doing a, like a barbell preacher curl, you're actually, it's harder at the bottom. So there's more tension at the bottom of the range of motion. So you're at a longer muscle length, right? Yes. They, they, they didn't see a ton of growth for that. Like the length and position, they saw like regional hypertrophy was greater for the distal portion of the muscle. And then there was another study looking at moment arms. And they saw that when you increase the moment arm at a lengthened position, it, it looks like it leads to more hypertrophy. So tension probably matters at that point. I see. I see. Which, yeah, mechanical tension, I guess, is like a factor of the intensity or the strain on the muscle itself. And so you're causing the muscle to go through an adaptation through the stretch that's on it. So but that's cool to know because like if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of like bodybuilding hypertrophy, if you want to get hyper specific on your development of your muscles, maybe that's a variable you can manipulate in your training. Like if you're doing a uh like you said, a preacher curl, like, oh, you want to work more on your distal, you know, portion of the preacher curl, you may want to consider this implement over this one to yeah. try and get that hypertrophy. Yeah. And so I, I will say, unfortunately, there's not a ton of research in the resistance curve area. Um, so like there will definitely need to be more before I'm like, yo, you got to do this for sure. But like mm-hmm. right now I'm pretty optimistic on it. Um, but also I just am a little skeptical, but it does look like just training through long muscle lanes is probably better for hypertrophy. Um, yeah, it, there's, there's a lot more, I think there'll be a lot more research on long muscle lanes coming out very soon. Um, but yeah, that. I'm, I'm more interested in regional hypertrophy specifically because I think it may carry over into um, sports performance a little more. Um, it, it, it's an interesting area, but that's, I may not be, I'm not super set on that for my PhD yet. Like there are a bunch of different topics out there that I may end up doing at some point, but. Yeah. But sports we'll performance would be cool, man, because athletes find themselves in very awkward and unusual muscle lengths that you wouldn't see in the general population. Like over-exaggerated triple extension. You got a lot of dynamic valgus and like cutting and stuff. So if there's ways to like develop the musculature and maybe even like strengthen and maybe like injury preventative mechanisms by training in certain ways, that would be some pretty dope research. Yeah. I trust me. I completely agree. Um, hopefully, hopefully we'll see some stuff about that come out. Um, maybe in, maybe it's in the next few years, maybe it's in 20 years. We'll see what happens, but I'm, I'm sure something will come out about it in the future, hopefully before I pass away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I look forward to, to reading the papers with Seth Henson's name on it. So I can't wait to see him, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Yes, sir. Well, this was an awesome talk, man. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your night to kind of speak with me about all this cool stuff. Uh, Let the people know where they can find you plug anything you want to, man. Um, Yeah, I appreciate it. So I am a online shooting conditioning coach with myosense training. Um, you can probably just catch us at myosensetraining.com from our website, or we have, I have an Instagram account. I think it's, it's Seth Henson and there's a period in between and then myosense training. Um, and then you'll, you'll see some of our content there, but most of the stuff we put up is actually on the website. 
Um, I actually just put up an article about regional hypertrophy and its carryover for um, athletic performance. So if you are interested in that area. What timing? Look at that. <laughs> very, very interesting timing how all this worked together. Yeah. Yes. Um, if, if you are interested in regional hypertrophy stuff or if you just like think it might be cool to look at, I would go take a look at the article. Um, it's not perfect by any means, but uh, I think I think it brings up some interesting topics that might need to be discussed in the future. And if you if you want to try some of the stuff with some of your clients or if you're some one of your clients are more athletically inclined, um, it'd, be, it'd be super cool to look at, man. Yes, sir. I'll be sure to put all those links down in the description below. Y'all know where to find me, Instagram and TikTok at the underscore shift underscore method. We got content for y'all Monday through Friday on various topics, all things health and fitness related. Uh, of course, you can go to the shiftmethod.org to check out any of the merchandise that I have for y'all. We still got the shift method store for t-shirts, pants, water bottles, you name it. You probably got it. And of course, if you're looking for some coaching down in the South Florida region for in-person training, I have a few early morning time slots available. Uh, so just let me know by messaging me on Instagram or clicking any of those take action buttons. And as I mentioned before, stay tuned because I will be having some cool things coming up at the start of 2023 with some online programming. So very exciting news to come on that in the near future. Seth, thank you so much, brother. Appreciate you coming on. I hope you have a good night. All right. I appreciate it, man. Later. Night.